Welcome again to Mission 1711 and our podcast on the Bible. Um, as we get started, uh, today's message is um, it's going to be a little bit more of a uh, topical message that's derived straight from the Bible, but um, wanted to share some things with you all. And I uh, just want to say, as we get started, I always want to remind people that uh, we at Mission 1711 believe that the onus is on you uh, to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Now, we do that ourselves, and we're presenting to you how we understand what the scripture is teaching. And we do that as carefully and, and as uh, hopefully with as much wisdom as possible in understanding the whole counsel of God through the word from uh, Genesis 1, chapter 1 to Revelation 22. But we always want to admonish you and encourage you, search the scriptures yourself to see if these things are so. Don't take our word for it. Don't just look at a single verse uh, and apply you know, uh, an interpretation from a single verse, but take a look at what the whole scripture is teaching us and see if these things are so. Make the conclusion for yourself. Uh, we're not here to try and push an agenda. We're here to share with you the insights and the understanding and the wisdom that God has given us, and uh, that we understand that God wants for the whole world, that God wants for uh, people to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, not just in a theoretical sense, but in a very practical, real sense. We believe that God is leading people to walk with him in a practical sense uh, as Jesus taught. And so, um, we're asking you to to listen, to to carefully uh, seek to understand, are these things true? And uh, we welcome your insights and your input uh, from our messages. Today's message, we are calling the Christian Life Formula. Um, now, I want to say that uh, for a long time, I have been against what I call formulaic Christianity. Um, yes, this is Ian Millar and, um, uh, with Mission 1711, and this has been a, uh, a firm belief of mine that uh, people that offer us formulas typically are doing so out of an unwillingness to really search the mysteries of the Scripture, and they try to put things into, um, you know, uh, just pat systems, and I think that God is, is far beyond the idea of some sort of uh, formulaic system that he wants for us to know him much deeper and, and, and to search out the mysteries of, of life and of the Bible and of his spirit and his wisdom uh, working in us. And that really can transcend the idea of simple formulas. Now, what am I talking about? What kind of simple formulas? I'm talking about the simple formulas like, you know, when you, you hear a message in church that says, uh, well, listen, there are three points to a better life. Um, you know, this is kind of a typical type of formula you might hear three points to a, a, a more rich experience or, you know, uh, today's three points on how to be a disciple. Um, folks, if it was just three points that we needed to know, God wouldn't have given us 31,103 verses in the Bible. There's, there's much more to it than that. It is simple and it is, it is possible for us to come to a very plain and simple understanding of God through his word. Um, but the idea of these sort, sort of simple formulas, I find personally offensive. Um, another type of formula you might have heard is, you know, uh, especially if you go to a more traditional church, is 
discovering faith through the sacraments, you know, and, and somebody will uh, sort of expound on what's the beauty in the sacraments. And while the, there is beauty in the sacraments, the idea of just simply formulizing uh, your walk or what you need to know about God through the sacraments, it seems um, just a bit simplistic to, to us here. Because again, there's, there's some tremendous mysteries of the Bible that God expects us to search out. Uh, you know, it, t- it teaches us in the scripture to search out the scriptures to see if these things are so. Uh, Proverbs 25.2 says, um, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. Now, for those of us who can read and write and who have Bibles and who have been given the privilege of seeking God's word, um, we, we are, in a sense, uh, kingly people compared to people of, of times past. So I believe that God is, is really um, calling to us to search the scriptures and really understand what his mind and his purposes are, especially for our times. I truly believe we are living in the end of this age uh, and that very soon uh, God is going to pivot to a new a new direction in his redemptive process. And so we have this time and space that we're in. This is our watch to really search out, to understand uh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God, as Paul put it. Another type of uh, formulaic system that you've probably heard a lot of talk about, it would be that name it and claim it type of environment, uh, you know, where people are saying, look, just, uh, you know, make these claims, make these declarations, and suddenly, you know, you're going to be rich, you're going to be powerful, you're going to be wealthy. I don't see that in the scripture. Uh, If we look at, you know, Acts chapter 11 and 12, we see that from the very early days, uh, the church was under persecution. Jesus said, all who live godly in Christ shall be persecuted. Um, If you're not being persecuted, you might want to ask yourself, why are you living godly in Christ? Have you sought out to understand what God's purpose is for you in these days? Uh, maybe you've neglected that. Um, but the point being here that we we want to avoid simple cliche concepts. However, I say that, and I tell you, many years I, I've you know have said I, I really can't stand formulaic Christianity, and yet not too long ago, uh, in my prayer time, searching the the scriptures and and praying. Uh, for God to give me insight and understanding, he he spoke to me and said, I have a formula for you. And you know, God has a sense of humor, right? He'll teach you something, and then he may somewhat contradict that, and, and it only looks like a contradiction. God never contradicts himself. But uh, he gave me a formula right out of the scripture, and that comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. And I'm going to summarize the passage for you, and then we're going to dig into it and unpack it a little bit. But God's formula here is simply telling us, and this is, uh, you know, the second letter from Peter. So this is very much into uh, Peter's matured years uh, as an apostle, teaching and and guiding and and building the church. This formula is simply that God calls us to have faith in Jesus and add to that faith some characteristics. So he wants us to add to that faith, faith virtue. Add to that faith knowledge, add to that self-control, add to that perseverance, 
add to that godliness, add to that brotherly kindness, and add to that love. And it's really simply, this is a, a mathematical formula he's given us. It's faith plus these things. And what is the equal? What is the sum? The sum is that we, if we do this, if we add these things to our faith in Jesus, we will have a full and fruitful experiential relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to show you how it says that in the scripture, but I wanted to start off just helping people to see that formula, faith plus virtue plus knowledge plus self-control plus perseverance plus godliness plus brotherly kindness plus love will equal a full and fruitful experiential relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see how that works out. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and going onward to verse 9, it says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, corruption that is in the world through lust. Also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his old sins. Now, what exactly does that mean? Uh, if we want to stop for just a moment in, in looking at 2 Peter, let's go over, and I want to, I, I want to bring you to something that is a, a debated um, verse or set of verses in scripture and sort of bring these together here. And that would be the book of Ephesians chapter two, verses eight to 10. And it's a familiar passage. Um, we have surely heard this more than once if you've been around church for very long. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, most people will stop at that verse, the end of verse 9, and, and sort of set on that with, with a, a full stop. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul's next statement is, is really the key factor here, because Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what Paul is telling us here is, is that the salvation we're given is entirely a work of God through Christ, that we have no way to boast about it because we didn't do anything to earn it. We haven't done anything to uh, merit this uh, favor that God has shown us, yet it is something where we begin to participate with him, and that is that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what are these good works? Well, a little bit of help from the original language. The word workmanship in the original Greek there is the word poema. And uh, that's where we get the word poetry or poem. And it really means a, a beautiful work of art. This is artistry, as he's talking about. It's, it's workmanship that is something of beauty. And what God is saying to us here through these verses is that we are 
a, a beautiful work of art that he is putting his spirit, his time, his effort, his, his energies into us because we have trusted in Christ, because we've received that gift of salvation that Jesus has given us, right? So there's a duality here. It is entirely a work of God, a work of his spirit, that Christ has given us this salvation, and yet, because he's given it to us, we have this ability to be his workmanship uh, created in Christ for these good works which God prepared beforehand. What kind of good works are those? Well, the idea of the the fact that he's saying this is artistic uh, is not to say necessarily just artwork, but that there is a creative energy that God gives to those who trust in Jesus. And part of that creative energy is to have a willingness to walk out the, the goodness of God that Christ has given to us. So in order to understand what good works he wants us to do, we kind of have to get an idea of what Christ did for us. So part of the, the sense of urgency here with this message is we really need to know what these words mean in terms of what Jesus did for us to, in order to understand what Jesus will do through us, if that makes sense, okay? So we want to come back to Second Peter again to understand here. We want to focus in. For this reason, he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now, what is that virtue? What, what exactly is virtue? Um, this is talking about moral excellence. It's talking about taking right actions, having an uncompromising lifestyle, of doing what is right in circumstances that come before us, okay? So in every circumstance that we face as believers in Jesus, um, we are to bring a quality of life and a character of life that is measurable, that brings right action and moral excellence into everything we do. That's what, that's what virtue is. My wife often will say patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. And so what we want to uh, keep in mind is how we live is called to be virtuous. And, and remember, this is God's formula for full and fruitful living, and we don't want to lose sight of that. So the second quality that he's calling us to have is knowledge. Now, what, what kind of knowledge? Is this scientific knowledge? Is it mathematical knowledge? Uh, you know, is it knowledge of literature, reading and writing? I would say all those things are true. Uh, God wants us to build on the knowledge that is available to us. But ultimately, this knowledge is the knowledge of God and his kingdom. It's also knowledge of just basic common sense things. We have to bring wisdom. That's part of what scripture teaches us. That's what the book of Proverbs is about, is learning how to apply wisdom. That's why Jesus uh, sent his apostles out to tell us we're, we need to learn to walk as Jesus walked, right? Um, so there's a certain degree of that, but it's it's about the knowledge of good versus evil. What is God's plan in this world, and how is he bringing that plan together? Because if we don't understand those things, if we don't have knowledge of what God is doing in the world, we're going to struggle to walk it out, but we're also going to struggle to share it with others. But there is also a sense of we need to be aware of the world and of where we're at in the world and where we're at in, in the time of history in the world. Uh, we want to be aware of these things so that we can apply truth. So knowledge is important that we add that to our faith. There's nothing that's harder to relate to than somebody who has lots of faith, 
but really doesn't know why. Folks, we need to learn why we can trust in Jesus, why we can trust his word, because there are reasons for it. There, there, you know, a lot of people will say, well, faith is a blind faith. God just wants you to have a blind faith. No, actually, he doesn't. He has a, a desire for us to develop knowledge that we will understand the reasons why these things are true and that we can look at the evidences he's given us. One of the things I encourage people to do, especially if you're a new believer, is learn apologetics. Learn to understand why these things are true. Learn to understand how to look at the things of the Bible and perceive them and understand them in truth. Uh, and there's plenty of works out there. You know, the 20th century was was a time of tremendous apologetic work. Uh, and I can refer you, if, if you ask, if you're interested, we can, from our, our mission here, we can share a variety of different apologists with you that will help you to understand the reasons for your faith uh, a little better, or maybe much better. So the next one is self-control. Now, you know, it's important that we understand what, what is self-control and why do we need it? And there's nothing worse than watching young people today who, who are out running around in the world who have no idea what they're doing with themselves. They get into trouble and largely it's because they have no self-control. Now, I'm not saying just young people have that problem, but it is sad to watch young people shipwreck their lives because they have no self-control. So what does that look like? What, what, what is self-control and how do we, how do we gain uh, a, an attitude or a, a, um, a quality of self-control about our lives? Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it gives us a lot of information about the spiritual war that we're in. And it's important that we understand we have a real living adversary who is a very intelligent adversary. He has minions, perhaps millions of minions that are working to undermine our faith and attack us personally, um, all in the spiritual realm, but it's still very real. Um, but also we have our own you know, carnal nature, our own uh, rebellious nature that works against us, right? And so part of what we have to learn how to deal with in order to gain self-control is understand what we're, what we're dealing with in, in the spiritual realm and in our own human nature, our own rebellious nature. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not fleshly. They're not made of material things, okay? The weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, what strongholds are those? Those are habits, addictions, bondages, uh, false ideas, false understandings. Um, those are, are the strongholds that God wants to pull down in us because we can't walk like Jesus walked if we are filled with uh, all manner of addictions and bondage and and false ideas and and if our minds are given over to the things of this world, right? So how do we do that? It says in verse five again. This is Second Corinthians ten, uh, verse five. It says, "Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God." It says, "Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against God, against the knowledge of God." bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, this is talking in a personal way. We're not trying to punish other people. We have to, to deal with ourselves, disciplining ourselves. And self-control comes from, first of all, 
disciplining our mind to have right thoughts, to, to think on the things of God and to understand the ways of God and to build our knowledge of God in a way that we can then master ourselves. And a big part of that is understanding how to take control of our thoughts. Our thought lives are where our, our habits start. Habits start in, in our thinking. And so we want to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Every one of us has this problem. We ponder, we think, we lust on all manner of things that are ungodly. And then we wonder why our actions are ungodly. Well, it's very simple. We've We've spent hours and hours of time dwelling on things from a lustful perspective and not from a godly perspective. So how we deal with that is we cast down arguments. Those arguments are the things in your own mind, the arguments against God. And everybody has them. We, we you know we deal with people a lot through the mission uh, here that you know people will challenge us about our faith. And uh, part of the reason why we can answer those questions is because we first answer them to ourselves. We answer them in our, in our own hearts, our own minds, our own foolish thinking by searching the scriptures to understand the mind of God, right? And then we learn how to bring those thoughts into captivity. How do we do that? Well, when you encounter something where you know you're thinking things that are ungodly, making the decision to take control of that thought and say, I will not think that in the name of Jesus, I am going to think these things this way and put them in line with the word of God so that we can approach our world and approach our own, you know, actions and our own lives from the perspective of what God would have us do. That requires learning the word, friends. You, you need to get into the word of God and especially look at the life and the times of Jesus, the four gospels, the things he taught and the things taught by his uh, apostles and understanding these are the things that give us power to walk as his disciples. And so that's how we do it. So the next question is, uh, what about perseverance? So what is perseverance? Perseverance, uh, you know, in one Bible version is called long suffering, meaning we, we stick it out when it's hard, uh, meaning we don't give in just because it's painful or it's difficult. How do we do that? Well, we have a mindset that says, I have a mission. I have a, a calling. I have a purpose in life to live out the things of God. And so I'm going to do that even when it's hard, even when things are against me. And when it gets hard, I'm going to call on that power of the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, help me. Help me stick with this and not give up. So perseverance is extremely important. Um, it is absolutely one of the the key things of the Christian life going back for 2,000 years that the people of, of God, the, the disciples of Christ, had to endure hardships and trials, difficulties, uh, and they had to do it patiently. So we want to develop that kind of, of skill. Now, this is true with any discipline. I don't care whether you're a martial artist or a musician or whatever. Uh, anything that you would do that requires um, you know, discipline and, and excellence is going to require perseverance. You know, if you're going to learn guitar, you're going to persevere past where your fingers hurt. You know, if you're going to be a singer, you're going to persevere past where your voice is tired because you can never be great without really working at something. And it's true with the Christian life too, that we have to develop habits and disciplines and practices that require us to be very patient, sticking with prayer, sticking with studying the word, sticking with walking through hard times, sticking with doing the right thing when everybody wants us to do the wrong thing. 
right? So perseverance is a key factor to being a Christian. So next is godliness. Now, what is godliness? Is that kind of the same as virtue? It sounds like it, right? Well, actually, the idea here is um, not just moral excellence, but godliness is to pursue the holiness of God, to, to realize that our God is a consuming fire. Our God is high and exalted. He created the entire universe. He is, he is perfect. He is holy. And we want to put ourselves under his authority in a way that, that has reverence for him and that takes action in life by his authority and by his holy presence. So we want to have a sense of, of personal um, approach to holiness that says, my life belongs to God. And I have to live and act in a way that pleases him and that pursues the things of God, right? Uh, why is that? Well, because the Bible tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. So if you've been given the gospel of, of Christ and you've been given the opportunity to repent and to seek him and follow him and be forgiven of your sins, you want to learn how to walk and live in a way that is dedicated to God, that is not pursuing ungodly or or maybe not ungodly but things that are just godless that that don't have god's purpose in them so we want to learn how to be actively pursuing intentionally pursuing the things of god that's what godliness is now brotherly kindness and love what what are these two things these are really two different ways to look at what we call love in in the world you know if you have somebody that you really care about a brother or sister um, you're going to be kind to them and so as the family of Jesus, the people who have been called to join to him as his disciples, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And we want to be kind to our fellow brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, life is already hard enough for each of us as it is, because we do experience persecution. We do have to run against the ways of this world. We do have to fight against the spiritual darkness. And so we want to bring kindness to one another in a way that recognizes, hey, brother, sister, I know you're going through the same challenges I am. You're trying to learn how to walk like Christ in the world, and the world's against you. And I'm, I want to do everything I can to help my brothers and sisters find strength in their walk. And so that means being others-focused, right? So that's, that's the idea, is, is to be others-focused. Think of doing things for others as we would have them do for us. Jesus said, you know, what we call the golden rule, uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And that's really what that brotherly kindness is. Now, the last virtue here in this, in this set is love. Now, this is a whole level beyond brotherly kindness. This is, you know, God's agape is the word in, in, uh, in the Greek language. Agape means to be sacrificial, uh, to, to have a love for others that requires something of you more than feel goods, right? Uh, or the good fields, as some people will say. Um, this requires actually doing things for the benefit of others uh, that is beyond what anybody might even ask of you. Uh, that, that says, I'm going to take care of this person's need um, as if they were somebody that I deeply cherish. But you might do that in a way that you don't even get credit for it. This is where the word agape, again, is the, is the key word here, is where we love sacrificially to the benefit of others. And that is, frankly, the hardest thing to do, uh, but it is definitely what we're called to do. Now, 
the result of all this, the sum of this equation is full and fruitful experiential relationship. You say, Ian, where does that say that? I don't see that here. Well, it does. It says that we give all diligence to add these things, right? Because he says, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. Barren means to, to lack anything uh, fulfilling, right? Barren means to, to be empty, okay? Nor unfruitful. See, Jesus told us we were called as his disciples to bear fruit. That's, that's what he called his disciples to do, to bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, this is the fruit of godly character and the fruit of being disciple makers, the fruit of being people who are committed to his kingdom, and the fruit of all of the virtues that Christ has, has taught us and, and given us. So we won't, don't want to be unfruitful. Now, you might make it to heaven, friend but you you don't want to be there without rewards. Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor thieves can steal or destroy, right? So we we want to not only get to heaven, that, that's step one, but we, when we get there, we, we, we don't want to be uh, refugees, right? We, we want to have the rewards that God would intend for us. And I believe that there are going to be stores of rewards in heaven that are unclaimed by people who never, uh, never actually stored up treasures in heaven. Uh, and so we don't want to be that. We don't want to be heavenly refugees. We, we want to be faithful people who are living for Christ in a way that, that the rewards that we have, uh, you know, saved up here on the earth are, are ours to receive when we get there. Again, we don't earn anything from God. God is not our debtor, but he does say store up treasures so that when you get to heaven, you, you have possessions there. Okay. So the next thing is, uh, well, how is that about experiential relationship? Well, let's just say, because it says here that it will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just say that what is that knowledge? Does it mean to know about him? Uh, does it mean to just be, you know, a walking encyclopedia? No, no, not, not at all. That word knowledge is about having a personal relationship, a, a knowledge that's intimate, uh, an interactive, uh, you know, knowledge of relationship that is of our Lord, because it is a, a relationship with our Lord. Now, you might say, I'm, I'm not sure I've heard people talk about relationship with Jesus, and, you know, I don't really know where that comes from. And quite frankly, it's it's not hard to understand. It's it's in the Bible, but a lot of people misunderstand what they're reading when they read it. So let's go to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 21 to 23. Now, this passage is the Lord Jesus speaking, and he is teaching uh, in Israel uh, the famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's It begins with what we call the Beatitudes, and it goes on for several chapters of Jesus teaching really the characteristics of kingdom people. These are things he's calling us to understand. And so some things are very positive. Some things are very negative. He wants us to understand what is and what is not fit for the kingdom, right? So uh, Matthew chapter seven, verse 21 to 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now right there, when you hear that, that ought to perk your conscience just a little bit. You, you might want to say, hmm, 
That's interesting because what do we all do? We all say, Lord, this and Lord, that, and Jesus is Lord. And, and it does tell us in the Bible that, you know, a person can only say Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. So what's up with this? Does this mean that some people can lose salvation? No, that's not what it's teaching. Okay, let's read the whole thing. We, we want to be careful not to have theology built on a single verse, um, because, of course, Jesus is teaching you know entire chapters here, and it all goes together. He wants us to understand the full idea that he's giving us here. So let's look at the whole, uh, the whole passage. Again, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, how do we know the will of God in heaven? There's a lot of a lot of things here that God teaches, and uh, you know, how do we know what's what's His will, right? And most new believers, when they get serious about their faith, they begin to ask, "What is God's will for me?" Well, the first thing we need to understand is is that God's will for us is that we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's number one. If we don't have that, nothing else you believe about Him is going to do anything for your life. Because the Bible has taught us very clearly that we are justified by faith. Faith alone? No, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that he is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God who came into this world to forgive our sins, to pay the debt for our sins, and that he is also God in the flesh who, after having been crucified for our sins, was in the grave, and on the third day, rose again. These are the keys. Paul the Apostle teaches us this, that this is the essence of what it means to believe. We we believe then that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh, but he's also God, the Son, who rose again to new life by his own power. He te teaches us that he would rise himself from the dead, right? So we need to understand that this is the nature of who he is. And in believing in him, now we have the ability to enter into new life. Jesus said that whoever believes in him will not perish. That confounds a lot of people because they want to add something to that. They're like, they're just sure that can't be enough, right? But see, if you're believing in him, that means you're receiving his spirit and his spirit is transforming you from a creature of darkness into a creature of light. And that's where the magic happens. Sorry to use a bad word. I know a lot of people will be upset, but, you know, from a standpoint of, of just idiomatically, there is magic in the Holy Spirit transforming our lives. Again, just idiomatically, not trying to build a doctrine on, on anything called magic, right? So in verse 22, Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Sounds pretty good. These guys have got some supernatural stuff going on. They've got their own kind of magic maybe here, and they're doing it for Jesus, right? That sounds pretty good, right? But Jesus says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What? How is that possible? Well, Jesus is pointing something out to us here that really he, he spends the rest of his time demonstrating in his teachings that's very important, and that is that works do not save us, and supernatural works do not necessarily come from God. 
So we need to understand that. We, we may see or hear of supernatural things. In fact, the Bible says that the closer we get to the end, that there will be supernatural things that will seem very powerful that are not of God. And so we want to understand that just because we see and hear something supernatural or that appears to be supernatural does not mean it's from God. So let's just be really careful not to allow ourselves to be drawn into things just because they seem spiritual, right? So he's showing us that works don't save us, and he's also showing us not to be misled here. What's the point he's getting to? He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. It's the same concept here of having this intimate knowledge, this relationship. And he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, a lot of times, uh, false teachers will really zero in on that one word, lawlessness. And so they'll try to convince you that if you're not keeping the rules the way they tell you to, that means you're lawless, and that means you are going to hell, okay? You've probably encountered people like this, and what I want to tell you is, is that they are misguided, because here's what the whole Bible teaches us, from, from the book, uh, the Torah, five books of Moses, through to the end of Revelation, the Bible is teaching us one key thing. There is no one righteous, not one. All people are lawless. All people are lawless. And so the point Jesus is making here is not that you can make yourself good enough for God, but that you are lawless, and the answer to that is to know Christ. We have to know him and be known by him in order to deal with that lawlessness. Christ came to die for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we might know him and walk with him, okay? And it's in being cleansed by Christ, by our faith in him, in a figurative sense, having the blood of Christ cover us, that we begin to experience the life of God, the Holy Spirit, okay? So all of these things cannot save us, and this is what we want to be sure on. We want to go back and look at here, because some people will try to say that this is telling us that if you are not perfectly living out these virtues, that you're not saved. That's not what Peter is saying, okay? So what is he saying? He says, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is back at, at 2 Peter chapter 1, and we are here at uh, verses 8 and 9. If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you can have a knowledge of Christ and not have these things in which you will have a knowledge of Christ, but you will be barren and unfruitful. And Peter is saying that you don't want that. You, you do not want to, to leave this world without having some treasures stored up in heaven. Okay, You might go there, but you don't want to be a refugee right? So God gives us the challenges of this life that we might learn to live out our faith by adding virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These are, these are fruits of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Now, here at, at Mission 1711, we believe that, that all people who are born of God's Spirit, who are truly believers in Jesus Christ, are going to have these characteristics, these fruits of the Spirit at work. But it's much better 
if it happens because you're intentional than if it's accidental, right? You might have just, you know, a tendency to be kind and, and maybe even loving at times, but fail on the godliness and the virtue side. A lot of people do that. There's a lot of really nice people who can even be very kind, but who really lack virtue, right? Or you might be a very virtuous person who has a lot of moral excellence, but be unkind, unloving, and very impatient with people. That happens a lot. There are a lot of very religious people who are like that. And what Peter is saying to us is we, we need to have all of these characteristics in our lives. Why? Because it's key to our knowledge of Christ. See, the more you act like Christ, the more you're going to find yourself experiencing his presence, right? Partly because we have to be intentional. We have to seek Christ in order to have those virtues. And we have to be wanting to know him in our lives so that we can live out these characteristics. And in doing that, we, we know him better. Right? The more you try to understand and walk with him and, and recognize his working in your life, the more you're going to know him and the more he's going to know you. Right? Again, you, it, the point is, is you're going to have that interactive relationship with him. So all these things are key to understand because we don't want to be short-sighted. We don't want to miss out in this life these opportunities that we have to exercise these characteristics. And we want to understand that these, these are really meant to be in balance in our life, right? We're not to major on one and skip the other. A lot, of, a lot of Christians are great with knowledge. I mean, I meet Christians all the time who have lots of knowledge of the Bible, but they really struggle with kindness and they really struggle with, with uh, moral excellence. You know, they're, they're very head full, but heart weak. And we want to be careful uh, not to have that happen to us. Why? Because he says that, the person like that has forgotten they were cleansed from their old sins, right? Now, this is, again, where a lot of uh, false teachers, especially cults, will try to get you caught up on works-based righteousness. Because what they'll say to you is that uh, if you don't have these characteristics, you're no longer cleansed. That's not what Peter said. <clears throat> he said, you will have forgotten that you were cleansed. See, a person who has been born of the Spirit who is alive in Christ, who is living by faith, they're, they're cleansed from their sins. Not just their past sins, by the way, but all of their sins. But the, the point is, is that Peter is saying that we don't want to have that old life governing us. We're called to a new life. We don't want to let the old characteristics be what we major in. We want to major in the thoughts, the character, and the power of Christ. So, this is where we, we really need to grasp a hold of these things. Now, why do I zero in on that? I want to go back because the point Peter is making in, in the section just before this is really key. Because he says that he, uh, going back to um, verses 3 and 4, uh, by the, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So Christ has called us, right? By which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. Now, folks, I, this is the point at which I, I really struggle with so many people who teach legalistic concepts. Because if you don't understand that God has given us promises that are unconditional, that depend on God alone and not ourselves, you're never really going to be able to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be stuck 
trying to manufacture Holy Spirit virtues out of your flesh. And trying to manufacture those never works. Ultimately, you'll be frustrated and angry. And I've seen many people try to manufacture Holy Spirit virtues, Holy Spirit power in their life out of their flesh. They get frustrated and eventually they either walk away from their faith or they just sort of give up on it. They just get shipwrecked. I don't want that for you, friends. I want you to come to the understanding that the Holy Spirit will work in you to accomplish his works because of his promises. Now, what are those promises? What promises can we look to that we can hold on to? Well, first of all, one of those promises is in 1 John chapter 1, where it says that we have forgiveness by confession. Now, this again runs against the grain of false teachers. Some false teachers say you don't have any sins at all in the first place. That's wrong. Some false teachers say you've been cleansed from sins once, and it doesn't matter what you do after that. That's also wrong, too. The Apostle John is teaching us that we have cleansing from sin when we confess our sins. He also says if we say we have no sin, that we're a liar. So there are some people that say, well, you know, uh, once you're saved, you know, you've repented and you no longer sin. And so therefore they're convinced that they they never have any sin in their lives. And the apostle John is telling us that's, that's a lie. That's a falsehood. You, you're deceiving yourselves. Uh, even if you try really hard, you're still going to have things in your life that are error that come from the rebel nature, because each one of us is still in the flesh. Yes, when we when we are born of the Spirit, we have a new nature given to us, but that new nature will not in this lifetime erase the flesh. We still are in our carnal, rebel, sinful flesh. What we have to learn to do is die to that sinful flesh. That's what baptism is pointing out to us, right? We we by being baptized, we are symbolically saying, I have died and I'm being raised to new life. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul says that he had to learn to live that out daily. He said, I died daily. So anybody that thinks that they've been fixed once and for all, and that they never sin, uh, is actually self-deceived. So First John says, if we are faithful to uh, confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we we have this promise that we can come before God, confess sin, and be cleansed. That's one fantastic promise to know that God is committed to cleanse us from sin. Now, another promise that's pretty amazing is God's sovereignty. God is in control of things in the world. Even when it seems like chaos is reigning, even when we don't understand it, God is in charge. He is bringing all things to a conclusion which will be to redeem people out of this world. And so we can sort of all try to figure out where exactly is God sovereign and how is he exercising that sovereignty? And that's an area for a lot of people to debate. But listen, let's just accept that God is sovereign. He's in control, but he's not forcing you or me to do anything. We are learning to walk with him faithfully uh, within that sovereignty, right? But it, the promise is there that he who began a good work in us will complete it, right? So God has begun something in you, and the promise there is if you trust him, he's going to complete that work in you. 
or he's going to bring you through hardships until you learn to trust him. He'll still complete the work in you if, if God has begun that good work in you. So turn to him, trust him for that. Uh, there are many other you know, similar promises. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus said that several times in the New Testament, but it's also an Old Testament promise that God will never leave or forsake his people. The good news is, is that in the Old Testament, the people of God kept leaving God and forsaking him, and he would have to punish them for that. And in those punishments, he was promising he would be with them. He would not forsake them. But you see, in in our life as Christians, the promises of God now are yes and amen. He is not bringing curses on us at all. He is bringing blessing on us. And all we have to do to receive that blessing is continue to walk and trust in him by faith, not by works, by faith. Yes, we're going to do good works. You've probably done some good works today you didn't even think about until after they happened. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's going to work through you that way. But those don't earn you any merit before God. And that's what we have to understand is that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, but we become his workmanship. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We become his workmanship in Christ. Uh, what about other promises? What other promises? Well, the Lord promises to be our shepherd. You know, that's a psalm from the Old Testament. Yet Jesus adopted all of that imagery to say, I am the good shepherd. Right, so our Lord Jesus Christ is our good shepherd, and we can say the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. We can we can know that He will meet our needs and care for us through hardships and trials, and bring us as overcomers to accomplish His will in this world. Right? I think one of the best promises we can understand is that Jesus has said He will give us His peace, peace that guards our hearts. And so we can have peace in the midst of trials. Folks, there are a lot of trials going on in the world, and I'm well aware that many of the people that may listen to this may be going through tremendous hardships right now. But if we're trusting in Jesus, he will guard our hearts. He will bring us through those things and turn us into overcomers. And those are some, just some, a few of some exceedingly great and precious promises, right? But let's not forget the most important promise Jesus made us, John 3, 16, right? Whosoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Will not perish, but have everlasting life. What Jesus is saying to us is that by faith in him, by being anchored to Jesus, there is nothing that can come upon us that can destroy us in an ultimate sense. He will save us both in this life, through this life, and into the next life, he will bring us through it if we trust in him. And so we want to make sure we understand everything else flows out from that. Everything else that he wants to give us originates with that faith to trust him to be our savior. And God has put that stamp on everything from the beginning, that this is his purpose for us, and this is what he's committed to, and he will not leave us nor forsake us. Well, just as we are wrapping this up, we want to understand, uh, what is all of this about then? You know, again, it's not about trying to manufacture something. Because what Peter says to us here in, uh, in verse 4 and 5 is that all of this is been done so that through these things we may be partakers in the divine nature. Partakers in the divine nature. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit of God. 
That's the 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 amazing, creative, generous, loving, uh, beautiful, holy nature of God. That's the divine nature that can only come by the Holy Spirit. No human being can manufacture it. No human being can, uh, you know, in any way even mirror it apart from His work in us. And what Peter is saying is is that we've become partakers in that divine nature. And having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, when you want to live for Christ, you don't want to live for any false gods. When you want to live for Christ, you, you, you don't want to worship idols or images. When you want to live for Christ, you don't want to defame his name. You love his name. You revere his name. Right? So all of the commands, when, when we look at them, in Christ become very clear to us, very simple to understand. All of these things are beautiful ways that the divine nature gives us a whole new perspective on life. We begin to understand that life isn't about us, but we get to have beauty in life as we live it out for Christ. So all of these things are are gifts to us in, in what I call, again, the Christian life formula. And I hope you'll take time to read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, yourself. Now, the, the version I've been using here is the King, the New King James Version, for uh, those of you that want to know, know and understand what Bible I'm using. Um, but again, look at it in different versions. Get a sense of what is the Word of God showing us here from the original language, and, and really ponder, how can these things be true in your life? Pray. Seek His face. Lord, I want to be somebody who has knowledge, who has self-control, who has perseverance, who has godliness inside of me, who has brotherly kindness and love inside of me. I want to be virtuous like you are virtuous, Lord Jesus. Add that to your faith by the power of his spirit, and it will give you a knowledge of him that transforms everything about who you are. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a message from Mission 1711.